You know, in the early uh, time of the Reformation, um, it was not allowed to read Scripture without making comments about it. Every single time a Scripture portion was read, the Reformers believed that there had to be an improvement of it. (laughs) And by improvement, we don't mean to say that I can improve on Scripture. But the point is improving your listening of the Scripture. And a lot of this was because of the pro forma kind of sort of formalistic kind of that Rome had, had caused to permeate the worship of Christians for centuries. And so the reformers were intent on having worship have a connection to our hearts and our minds. And this is why, for instance, worship had to be in the vulgar tongue. And vulgar didn't mean then what it means now. It meant the common language of the people. With that understanding, I want to make a comment about Hosea. We do, as those of you know that worship here each week, we read consecutively through Scripture. And so this week we came to this chapter of Hosea because we're reading through the book of Hosea. I want to ask you a question. Um, This last week we were discussing with a number of people from the nation of Mongolia the drop in the birth rate of Mongolia. Now, Mongolia has neighbors. To the north is Russia, and to the south is China. What is the birth rate of Mongolia's neighbors? For instance, Russia. It's absolutely catastrophically awful. (laughs) Unbelievably bad. The future of Russia is written with... Complete absence of children and pregnancy and vodka. And I mean it is a nation headed to oblivion. Think of the amount of land. There will be no people. And it's, 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 it's happening catastrophically right now. What about China? Well, one of the reasons some of us are opposing the Olympic Games being there, even though they're going to be there, is because for many decades now, China has had a policy. Stephen Mosher, uh, getting a doctorate at Stanford, was the one that first exposed this, and he got booted from the Stanford doctoral program. Um, They have had a policy of limiting the number of children you can have. Often, often, many, many women have been forced to abort their child if they get pregnant after having one child. This still goes on in China. We want the economics of the industrialization of this behemoth, and that's why we've stabilized relations. But don't make any mistake of thinking that China is a land of liberty, and particularly the liberty of having children. Now, here's a question. In China and Russia, and now Mongolia is is falling, Mongolia is still at about Uh, 2.6, I believe, uh, births per woman, and, and Taylor is our point six. Uh, Mary Lee decided this week when we were talking about this. Was it Taylor that's our point six child? And the other of our children are real children. You need 2.1 to reproduce and uh, your, your nation and stay on top of population, or you need immigration. The United States stays on top of growth because of our immigration, not because of how many children we have. In Mongolia, they still have enough to reproduce. 
Now, if we were to say that Russia to the north and China to the south are not having children, that the wombs are empty and that the breasts are dry, is there anything about the text we read this morning that would indicate why this has happened to China and to Russia? Now, before you answer that, let me ask another question. Is there anything about what happened to New Orleans or what happened to the World Trade Center that indicates what God has to say to America? Is there anything about uh, HIV that indicates what God has to say about sexual immorality? Now, the minute I ask these questions, I know what you are naturally taught to think as evangelicals. And that is that God is not like this anymore, that the God of the Old Testament has had his day, and now the God of the New Testament is taking over. And the God of the New Testament is a God of love. And isn't it nice that we don't have to live with the God of the Old Testament? So we take Hosea 9, the chapter that you heard read, and we just we shove it to oblivion, because that's not the God that we worship. But this is not true. The God of Hosea 9 is the God that we worship. God's justice and his love exist perpetually in perfect harmony with one another. This is the true God. So if your God is scandalized by any talk of him doing what's in Hosea 9, where he makes very clear that wombs that do not bear children and breasts that are dry is his judgment... If this is not your God, your God is an idol. And don't bring me into it, because I have nothing to do with it. Don't sit there and think, well, he's a monster. How could he say such a thing? I'd be a monster if I didn't say this to you. Because I'd either be ignorant of the thoughts that permeate every heart in America today... Or I would be a coward and not willing to say to you what Scripture says. All right. This is the God we worship. His arm is not weak. And he has promised that those who choose evil will be given their choice. And those who choose righteousness will be given his blessing. In fact... It is a blessing of God, as, as Stephen prayed this morning, it is a blessing of God that he does fulfill his threats. Because all of us know what it's like to grow up in a home where the father never makes good on his threats. It's an awful home. Because there is no justice and there is no truth, there is no integrity, there is no faithfulness. But God is not like this. The true God judges righteously. And so when we read Hosea 9, we need to remember that God is active in this world today. God has not become a passive observer of the affairs of man. Now, what we're all sitting here thinking is, then, is every woman in this church who has had miscarriages under the curse of God? And 
the answer is yes. And you say, well, how could that be? They're some of the most righteous women among us. And the reason is that God deals with us corporately. That God doesn't just deal with every one of us atomistically. Well, there's Phil, and now I'm going to deal with Phil, and there's David, and I'm going to deal with David. As happens, David is married to Vanessa. And therefore, David is the head of their home. As it happens, God deals with nations according to kings. As it happens, God deals with the human race according to Adam. He could have dealt with every one of us individually. But when Adam sinned, in Adam's fall, you remember the New England primer? In Adam's fall, we sinned all. In Adam's fall, okay, so God deals with us corporately. So yes, as believers, as pious Christian believers in America today, we partake of God's judgment on our nation. And there are godly Christians in China who partake of God's judgment on China. There are godly Christians in Mongolia and in Russia and in Western Europe who partake of God's judgment, of his punishment, of his warnings. And so we have to begin to think biblically instead of thinking simplistically, cheaply. And it's cheap thoughts that want to say to the latest woman in our midst that has had a miscarriage, it's all meant for good to you, and, and God's not like that anymore, and, and this is not a judgment, and, 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 and God's good. Well, of course all those things are true, and of course we comfort them. But this does not mean that when a nation becomes sterile that the judgment of God is not on the nation. You know, I love the fact that America thinks that she chose abortion. I love the fact that the entire apparatus of abortion lives under the rubric, under the propaganda of choice, right? Because, of course, it's not a choice at all. It's a judgment of God. When a nation gets to the point where women are taken by their own parents to a place where they pay money to have a child, their grandchild killed. And they talk about that as a choice. We know the one thing it isn't is a choice. It is a curse on the land. That's what it is. Do you understand this? It's a curse on me. I live in this land. And this God, who brings the curse on our land of the slaughter of 1.3 million of our unborn children every year. This God is the God who was among us in Jesus Christ and who went to the cross and who says to us, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your soul. The same God. And what determines whether we receive the judgment of God or the mercy of God is whether we accept the judgment of God as being holy and true. And then fly to Christ as our substitutionary atonement, knowing that we deserve nothing good from God and that if he decides that there will never be another human being born on the face of this earth, 
every breast will be dry. That he is true and just. And that it is our privilege to fall to our knees before him. And to worship him. Because everything he does is good. And so, Don, I have no hesitation in saying to you that God is merciful to you in the loss of your child. And to all of us. Because through you and the loss of your child, God warns all of us to new obedience. God warns our nation. And yes, Don grieves and Adam grieves and the whole family grieves. And it is a severe mercy. But this is the God that we love. Come on, people, love God. Don't love your idols. This is God, the God of Hosea chapter 9. Absolutely everything that happens on the face of this earth happens because of his eternal decrees. He is not limited. He is not ignorant. He is not impotent. And so the really amazing thing about this church is that Dawn has been given children and that she now has another one and that that child, because of God's promises, is in heaven. Safe. Children of the heavenly Father. And that he gives others of his children. How many women do we have carrying unborn children right now who have chosen not to abort them because of their careers and their pride and their money? How many do we have right now? We had another one this morning. Another announcement. Where are they? There you are. Come on, give praise to God. Katie. Now you're wondering, am I actually going to preach? <laughs> I just want to plead with you. Don't listen to the lies that are said in the name of God today. Don't listen to them. Hosea 9 that we read as our scripture lesson is our God. And he's a good God. He's a good God. Everything he does is perfect. And in case you don't know it, some of you are visitors. And I want you to know that probably my own daughters have had more miscarriages than any other women in this church, some of whom are sitting here. And if you don't believe that this is the God that we love, talk to them afterwards. Now, I want us to spend just a few minutes thinking about thankfulness, and I want us to use this morning... As an example of thankfulness, the actions of the Apostle Paul on a very dangerous voyage um, to Rome. So if you would open your Bibles to Acts chapter 27, um, let me give some comments about what's going on in this chapter and then make some observations about Paul giving thanks when they all ate the day before they landed safely on the beach. Um, Acts chapter 27, let me make a, uh, give you a, a feeling for what's going on in the first 13 verses, because we're going to pick up with verse 14. Uh, Paul is a prisoner. He's headed to Rome. There was a riot in Jerusalem, and 
because of the riot, Paul, after seeing that he wasn't going to be treated fairly, he appealed to Rome. Paul was a naturally born, not a naturalized, but he had been born a citizen of Rome. And this was high status in in the Roman Empire. And so Paul made an appeal to Rome, and after a couple of years of hanging around, uh, it finally came time for him to be shipped off to where he would be tried up in Rome. And he's put under the protection and also the uh, guarding of Roman military men. And they begin to take off on this journey to Rome. And uh, they get on a ship, they sail. um, And as time goes on, the vulnerability and the danger that they face grows more and more. Um, Now, the reason is because it's getting to the end of the year. In, in the Roman Empire at the time, surrounding the Mediterranean, it was known that you should not ever go out on the Mediterranean Sea between November the middle and March the middle. So about November 15th to March 15th, nobody would ever go out. But from September 15th to November 15th, it was very dangerous to go out on the sea. And interestingly enough, this chapter of Acts is actually the best record we have of sailing in the ancient world as an historical document. In fact, a whole book was written on it around 1850. And uh, so what we have here is an account of what went on on this trip. And the Apostle Paul is put on a ship. A centurion is on the ship. Um, They transfer to another ship. And this time it's an Alexandrian ship coming up from Egypt up to Rome. Rome depended upon the grain of Egypt to survive. So there was a very heavy shipping of grain that went on, kind of like uh, you see, you can see the trains with coal feeding the powerhouse of uh, Indiana University going by here. Would have been a similar heavy, heavy, heavy uh, freight traffic of grain. First service, I called it corn, and afterwards, Jiho Kim came up to me and said, corn is a new world thing. And I said, well, that's what all the commentaries call it. It's what the text calls it. So I went to my office and checked it out, and I'm wrong. Um, It is called corn, but that's because everything I'm reading is British. And the Brits uh, refer to any grain as corn. And we do, too, if you think about the fact that we call that thing that grinds on our table Uh, And the stuff we put in it, we call what? Peppercorn. And that's the way that the word is used in the commentaries and in your Bible, if you have a Bible influenced by the Brits. Um, It was any kind of wheat. It could be barley. It could be wheat. Um, We use wheat more generically than we do corn. But anyhow, this was what the ship was carrying. This was what uh, what its hold was holding. And so uh, they transferred to this ship, and they were going to go up towards Rome. And I'm going to pick up with verse 14. But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Uraquilo. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. A week ago, Mary Lee and I were out uh, in the uh, north of Seattle, up in the mountains, and we were in a plain area that was right next to a gap in the mountains. We were staying in a windmill in a Dutch town, Linden, Washington. And uh, 
for two days, the wind blew. And there's this gap cut in the mountains where the mountains come down and then it just looks like somebody went in with a machete and decided to hack out a piece of the mountains because it goes way down and then it's absolutely flat. You can see it from a long way up and then the mountains go up again. And so the wind is blowing through here. Well, you know how mountains can funnel wind towards you if you've ever lived in the foothills of Colorado or something. Well, this mountain was about 7,000 feet up, and so they were having the effects of wind coming 7,000 feet down a mountain. This was what was hitting them. And running under the shelter, verse 16, of a small island called Clauda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship, and fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Syrtis, they let down the sea anchor, and in this way let themselves be driven along. And so when the wind hit, they had the dinghy out, you know, the Boston whaler, hanging by rope. Well, you don't, when you go in a big storm, you don't want a boat like that hanging off your boat because, number one, what good is it? You know, you can't jump off the ship into the boat if you need a lifeboat. And number two, it, the wind can blow it against the boat and it can smash the timbers of the boat. So they had to bring it in, but it would have been very, very difficult. And then they took cables and they wrapped them around the ship to strengthen the ship knowing they were going into such a severe storm. And then they threw out sea anchors. And sea anchors are anything that's heavy that is going to help to cause a particular part of the ship to go slower than the rest of the ship. Because why? Well, because likely you're going to lose your rudder. And you're going to lose your, your, your sails. You're going to take them all down anyhow, right? And so the sea anchors drag a per, part of the boat, which slows that part of the boat down. That's about all you can do to steer. And so they threw out the sea anchors, they bound the boat, they lifted the, boat, the, the dinghy up in, or the lifeboat, or whatever you want to call it. And the next day, verse 18, we were being violently storm-tossed, and they began to jettison the cargo. Now, at this point, it's not the grain, not the corn. It's uh, other things that they were carrying. Verse 19, and on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. So now think about this. Everything's gone except the grain. And the people. They've thrown everything overboard. So how intense is this? It's very intense. Since neither, verse 20, since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small storm was assailing us, from then on all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. You know, we have absolutely no idea out here in the plains of the Midwest what a sea storm is like. Some of you saw the perfect storm a few years ago about the Gloucester fishermen. Uh, when you go to Gloucester, every Thanksgiving, I love uh, those who go down to the sea. They have a, 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 a fisherman uh, standing at a wheel on a pedestal right by the harbor in Gloucester, Massachusetts. And they have that text from Psalms uh, underneath it. And the danger that there is... Josephus is a historian at the time. Josephus talks about being shipwrecked. He was on a ship that held 600 and some people, and he was shipwrecked. The Apostle Paul now is an authority on this boat. In fact, when they make a decision how they're going to handle the storm, you'll notice that the Apostle Paul's called into the decision. Why would the Apostle Paul be called into the decision? Well, if you look at 2 Corinthians 11, verse 25... 
you'll see this there, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, where the Apostle Paul says, Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have spent in the deep. So by this time, the Apostle Paul has been shipwrecked three times. As a matter of fact, he spent three days hanging to a spar, a piece of wood out of the ocean. So he's an expert at what they're doing. Right? So they gave up hope. No small storm was assailed, and then on all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. Verse 21, when they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. They had had a powwow. They had decided that they would proceed and try to make it to Phoenix. Paul had said, don't do it. There will be loss of life. They didn't listen to Paul. The centurion listened to the man that had charge of the ship. Actually, the centurion would have made the decision because as the Roman officer, this was a Roman ship. It wasn't owned by the owner. It's translated owner, but that's not what it really is. It was just a guy that had charge of what was a state ship. And he's saying, you should have listened to me. And sometimes people will trot this out as an example of the Apostle Paul being arrogant. I don't think so. I think he was trying to get them to listen to him now. You know, you wouldn't listen to me before. Now, listen. And so he, he goes on and he says, You ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, an angel of God to whom I belong, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe, God, that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. They had been in a certain harbor. It had been a decent harbor, not a good one. And it had been a small town, and they had decided that they would proceed. But it was dicey. It was getting very late. It was around... uh, the time that no sane man would set uh, sail in the Mediterranean. Paul said, don't do it. They decided to proceed and try to make it to a better harbor where it would be a larger city. Uh, 250 people would not be such an inconvenience to all of the, all of the, uh, the residents of the city, and it was a better harbor. And now Paul's saying, you shouldn't have done it. You should have listened to me. But the God that I belong to, that I serve, that God has promised that no, none of you will, will lose your lives. And then he says this. But when the 14th night came, as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. And so it's dark, and they would have heard the breakers on the rocks. And that would have told them that they were getting close to land. So they took soundings, let down, you know, wait to see how far down it went before it lightened up and and it hit the bottom. And a little farther on, they took another sounding, verse 28, and found it to be 15 fathoms. 
fearing that we might run, the first one, I'm sorry, was 20 fathoms and then 15, so it's getting more shallow. Fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. Now, why four anchors? Well, because back then they didn't have the mechanical apparatus to lift heavy anchors. And so the anchors were much lighter and smaller than anything we've seen. So they're doing everything they can to keep that ship from crashing against the rocks at night when they can't see where they'd be safe. They're completely vulnerable at night. They want to just make it towards day. And by now, uh, they take soundings. They know where they are. They throw out these four anchors, and they wish for daybreak, it says at the end of verse 29. But as the sailors, verse 30, were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow. So what's going on here is that the men that should have been assuring the protection and safety of everybody on the ship are only trying to save their own skins. And so this boat that with great difficulty had been hauled up onto the deck of the ship now is put down, and the men who are the sailors are trying to escape. The, the pretense is we're going to go out and now put some anchors off the bow up here, and so they're all running for the boat and abandoning their vessel and everybody on it. Well, this would have been catastrophic for the people on the boat. Now, would you please notice with me <laughs> that the Apostle Paul sees what they're doing and knows what they're doing. Think about how rude it would have been for him to accuse them of trying to save their own skins. Ostensibly, you can't know for sure until they get to the bow, and it turns out they don't put anchors down. And then you know that they're really trying to escape. Now, what's the point? Well, the point is the Apostle Paul's a man, a man of discernment, a man of judgment, a man. And he names the evil that's being done. He names the deception. He names the deception before anybody else could know it was deception. He names it. And why am I saying this? I'm saying this because evangelicalism, Bible-believing Americans today think that Discernment is a gift that is of Satan and that we should just throw it out. You know, wouldn't it be nicer if all of us lived the Pollyannish life? <laughs> you know, we always said that every day in every way the world is getting better and better. And we always said that our wives are wonderful, our children are wonderful, our sons are pretty, and our daughters are above average or strong or whatever Garrison Keillor says, you know, wouldn't it be nice to go through life seeing everything through rose-colored glasses? Wouldn't it? Never calling a spade a spade, never naming deception and dishonesty, never standing against anything evil, just saying that, that every day and every way the world is getting better and better. You know, and then if you really want to live that way, what would be great would be to have a religion that told you that was godliness. <laughs> you know, here's an idea. I can put on rose colored glasses and call it Christianity. And I'll never have to name evil and I'll never have to stand against anything. Wouldn't that be neat? I can I can be. 
I can be what my father referred to as the fond mother-in-law system of biography. I can write a biography of a famous Christian man and never say that he tried to pass off his wife as his sister. I can write a biography of David and never talk about what David did with Bathsheba. You know, I can, I can live a life that's happy and then I die and go to heaven. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I mean, Dan, what, 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 I mean, how does it help? Really, how does it help you spiritually to go around talking about the corruption of companies messing up our rivers with bad chemicals? I mean, do you really feel that you're living the victorious Christian life when you do this? I mean, it's such a negative calling. Dan works for the federal government dealing with what, PCBs? Uh, so he goes to corporations all the time and say, you messed up big time and you're going to pay. That's his job. And it's such an unspiritual job. You know, we could never let a man like that be an officer of Christ's church because he has to look on the negative side. I mean, do you get the point? The point is this. Paul sees. He doesn't think it's spiritual to deny what's as plain as the nose on the end of his face. And then he doesn't just see, but he names it. And then he opposes it. And then he says, if it happens, you will die. So you better stop them. And that's godliness. So men, get in tune with what God made you to be. All right, this is who you're supposed to be. You're supposed to emulate men like this. And so he, he names what's going on. He says to the centurion, verse 31, and to the soldiers, unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. And then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. <laughs> men, get in touch with who God made you to be. Okay? Verse 33, until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food. Now, why would he have had to do that? Well, it's been two weeks since they've taken anything. Why would it be two weeks since they've taken anything? Well, because, number one, probably by this time, all the livestock that was on the boat would have been washed overboard. Number two, whatever food there would have been would have been tossed and turned in water because undoubtedly the ship was taking on water heavily. And most of the food would have been corrupted, what, what good food there was. But number three, if you've been in a terrible storm for two weeks, do you really think you're wanting to eat? No. You're probably seasick. You don't want food. But they need to eat so that the next day, the work that needs to be done will have them with energy, strong, able to handle it. And so the Apostle Paul says to them, what? I encourage you, verse 34, to take some food, for this is for your preservation, for not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. And having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. All of them were encouraged, and they themselves also took food. All of us in the ship were 276 persons. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. And if you read the rest of the story, they all made it safely. Now, the comments I want to make have to do with 
verse 34, where it says what? It says in verse, 30, or verse 35, Having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. Now think about this. Um, he tells them to eat. And then he takes bread and gives thanks to God in the presence of all, and he breaks it, and they begin to eat. We just pass over this because there's nothing worth commenting about in it, except if you stop and think about the situation they're in, where their lives are all on the line. He had to tell them to eat. And so they ate. Would you have stopped to pray and to give thanks at that time? I want to tell you, I don't think I would. I don't think I would have. And if I had, it would have been one of those prayers that you learn from your grandfather and pass on to your grandson. Most holy God, we give thanks that Thou has provided all things. You know, the prayer that you say at the restaurant when no one else at the table is a Christian, and you're a little bit ashamed that you are, and so you take your head forward and you kind of, you know, massage your forehead a little bit, and then you're done. And if people aren't aware of who you are, or who you claim to be, they can think that you just needed a head massage. And that's our prayer, and that's our thanks. But that's not what the Apostle Paul did. The Apostle Paul in front of them all gave thanks. And do you think it was a pro forma prayer, a prayer that was just sort of habit and rote and kind of what you learned from your grandpa? Do you think that's what Paul prayed? I'll bet that if I'd been there, I would have been thinking, let's get on with it, dude. In other words, I'll bet it was heartfelt, and usually heartfelt things take a while. My mother sometimes was interminable. Why did Paul do this? Paul did this because Paul had a heart of gratitude to Jesus Christ. For the Apostle Paul, it would have been impossible not to do this because he had a grateful heart. So do you have a grateful heart? And if you want to know the truth, ask your children. Ask your wife. Notice, women, I didn't tell you to tell your husband. <laughs> I told him to ask you. What I've noticed in reading this, what I've noticed lately is that I have gotten to the point where my wife brings me lunch and I'm upstairs in the bedroom working. What I've noticed is 
that usually about this time in my life, that sandwich is in my mouth with a bite already bitten off as I pray. And you say, well, now turn us into a bunch of legalists. That's not my point. Do you think my heart is graceful if I'm like eating as I'm praying? What kind of a prayer do you think I'm saying? Well, the prayer is not good. Oh, Father, I thank you for this gift which you have given to me. And if I want to feel spiritual, I'll use King James, which thou didst bestow. And I just want to ask, are we grateful as the people of God? Are we grateful? When we get up in the morning, are we grateful for another day? Are we grateful for our wives and for our husbands? Are we grateful for our children? Are we grateful for our homes? Are we grateful for the gift of new life? Some of you would say, well, if you had my life, you wouldn't be grateful. You know, you're at, you're at the prime of life. You've got, you're surrounded by grandchildren and children. You're content. And I say, look at the Apostle Paul. Look at the Apostle Paul. He wasn't surrounded by his grandchildren. And he promised everybody they'd be safe. Do you think he was confident? No. He was filled with faith. That's what he was. And the Apostle Paul gave thanks in front of them all. So the application of this to us is we need to look at our hearts and see if they're thankful. (laughs) One more point. What bands do you listen to? And what movies do you watch? And what books do you read? You want to know whether or not your heart is filled with thankfulness to God, gratitude? If the music and the movies and the books you consume are godless and lustful and dark, you do not have a life of faith. Your life is a life of love of darkness. Okay? If everything you write on your blog is cynical, and if you love to listen to people whoop up on the liberals on radio because it makes you feel superior, you don't have a grateful heart because a grateful heart can't stand a constant diet of Rush Limbaugh. Do you understand what I'm saying? You are what you eat. And there's a reason why Muslims look at our country and think Christianity equals sexual immorality and greed and materialism and just pure cynicism because that's the, the culture that we export. If that's what you take in the week and you think a little dose of of Jesus on Sunday morning and the Word of God is going to change you, it won't. You are what you eat. The liberals are right. Don't worry, I'm not trying to get you to go to Blooming Foods. That's not the point. The point is 
that everything that we are demonstrates whether or not we live lives of faith and we are thankful to God. And so be thankful because God is good. This God of Hosea 9 is good. And he's poured blessings out on us as a church, as families, as marriages, as singles. You have blessings abundantly. All right, let's pray.